Matthew 9, 1 to 17. And Jesus entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then said Jesus to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go into your own house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power unto men. And as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go you and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast. No one puts a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up takes from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, otherwise the bottles break, and the, and the wine runs out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved." Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we come together this morning and set this time aside to sing your praises, to pray to you, and to read your word, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. For Lord, we desperately need to be filled every day with your Holy Spirit. And God, we need you to give us ears to hear the things that you speak to us through your Son. Lord, the natural man doesn't receive these things, but these things are received only by spiritual men whom you've revealed to, this, to us by your Spirit. So I pray that this morning you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear, help us to see the things that you want us to see in this passage this morning. That you might be praised and glorified, and Lord, that we might be blessed and encouraged this morning. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Verse 1. Jesus enters into a ship and passes over and comes into his own city. His own city here is actually not Nazareth, but Capernaum. When Jesus began his ministry, he actually moved away from Nazareth and moved to Capernaum. So he's here coming back to his own new city, which he had moved to. And Matthew draws our attention to something very important. Notice in verse 2, Matthew says in his writing, Behold. And brothers and sisters, whenever we read the word behold in the Gospels or in the book of Acts or in any narrative, the author is drawing our attention to something amazing and something very important. So let's pay attention to why Matthew says behold or look. Look what is about to happen. Now in contrast to what we read last week at the end, look at verse 34 of chapter 8. Jesus cast out a legion of demons out of two men and they entered into a herd of pigs and ran down the cliff and perished. And the city came out, it says in verse 34, to meet Jesus. But they didn't come out to hear from Jesus. They came out to tell Jesus to get lost. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Now in this next story that Matthew records, he doesn't give us much detail, but Mark and Luke also record the same story, and they say that many multitudes came to Jesus to hear him teach. So now as we begin chapter 9, Jesus is teaching many multitudes. It says in verse 2, and you're probably familiar with the story, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, or a paralyzed man. Now, do you notice that Matthew, this is a familiar story, but do you notice that Matthew doesn't record any of the details regarding how they brought the paralyzed man to Jesus? Which is interesting why he doesn't, because it's such an interesting story and amazing. Mark and Luke both record that there was too many people in the house, and there were so many people around the house, that when they wanted to bring this paralyzed friend of theirs to Jesus, they couldn't get to him. And so they actually found a way to get up on the roof and destroyed the owner of the house's roof and then lowered the friend down through the ceiling to Jesus' feet in a packed house. That's an amazing act of faith, isn't it? Can you imagine destroying someone's property and interrupting a meeting to bring to Jesus your friend? And both Mark and Luke draw our attention to the faith of these friends, just that they believed that Jesus could heal and they cared for their friends so much that nothing was going to deter them. But Matthew doesn't record this. And the reason why Matthew doesn't record all these details is because he's not so interested in recording those details in this story because his true interest isn't in the friend's faith but in what this story shows us about Jesus. Now, he does record the friend's faith. It says in verse 2, and Jesus seeing their faith. So that's not absent, but that's not the focus. So this morning, don't think that the focus of this story is just, it's, you know, we ought to have faith in Jesus and, and, and stop at nothing to get to him. That's a true principle, but not what Matthew wants us to see. So what is it that Matthew wants us to see when he says, look at what happens? What does this reveal about Jesus? And that's the purpose of Matthew's gospel. He wants us to see who Jesus is. 
Can you feel the atmosphere? In Luke chapter 5, verse 17, it says, There were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So this was a pretty major moment. This wasn't Jesus just teaching in a house with common folk only. You had Pharisees and doctors of law from every city in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem itself that were there at that house. And so they lower this man down. And all eyes are on Jesus. And what does Jesus see when he sees this man? And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest this morning that when Jesus saw the paralytic man, he saw his true condition. Sure, he was paralyzed and laying on a bed, but notice that Jesus doesn't just see this man is physically paralyzed and he's being lowered for me to heal him physically, obviously, so I'm going to heal him because that's his greatest need. Jesus sees that this man is not only paralyzed physically, we could say he's paralyzed with guilt. How many of you have ever been paralyzed with guilt? Anyone ever been paralyzed with guilt? I've, I've been paralyzed with guilt before. You know what I'm talking about? It's when you know that you've sinned, because you have. It's not, when you're paralyzed with guilt, it's not something that uh, you shouldn't be thinking. If you have sinned, you should feel guilty. And you feel guilty, but the problem is, is that you feel hopeless. You feel like, this time, I've really blown it. This time, I've sinned so bad and God won't have me anymore. I mean, I knew I had sinned in the past and I knew it was bad, but I, you know, I still thought I could amend my ways and God's still hopeful of my progress. And, but this time, I really feel like I've blown it and God now definitely knows I'm a sinner and I definitely don't deserve God's mercy and grace. And when you're in that position, you're paralyzed. You don't really feel like doing anything else because the only thing that matters, your eternal soul, is in jeopardy and you don't feel like there's any hope. Paralyzed with guilt. Guilt causes you to be downcast. Guilt disables you from truly living. Guilt fills you with fear and despair. And this man, I want to suggest, because of what Jesus said to him, was in this condition. And he was in this condition because of the Pharisaical doctrine, which is not entirely untrue. The Pharisees taught that if you're sick, if you're dying, it's because of sin. And is that untrue? Is it untrue that sickness is a result of sin? Is that untrue? Some people would like to say it's untrue. But the reality is, is that there's only sickness in this world because we sinned. There's only sickness in this world because this is a fallen world. God, when he created this world, created it good. There was no sickness. There was no death. And the reason why we all die and sickness is an aspect of death, it's in that process of death, the reason why we die is because of sin. Death and sickness is judgment against sin. And the Pharisees also taught this because the Pharisees also read the Old Testament. And they taught this. And so it's not entirely untrue. But the problem is, is the Pharisees didn't teach the whole truth. And if all you teach is death is the result of sin and sickness is the result of sin, and God judges sin, and that's true, but you don't teach anything more than that, then you're going to create 
despair. The whole truth is what people need to hear. If you say something that's true but not the whole truth, it ultimately becomes a lie. So this man, imagine what he's feeling. We've mentioned this in the past, but when you read these stories of healings in the Bible, don't just see someone that needs physical healing. This is a person. This is a person with a past. This is a sinner who sinned against God. This is someone who's heard teaching his whole life about sin and God and righteousness, the kingdom of God, death, judgment. And Jesus, when he says to this man, your sins be forgiven, he's touching upon his true condition, what he ultimately needs to hear. The forgiveness of sins brings cheer. King James says, be of good cheer. In the Greek, it's better translated, be of good courage. Or have hope. Take heart, son. Take heart. The, the, the man had no courage. Have you ever seen a person without hope? Without courage? Maybe they're physically well. This man was not physically well. Have you ever met a physically well person that they had no courage or no hope? They were in despair. This man had both problems. Forgiveness brings cheer. Knowing that God forgives you lifts up your heart and gives you hope and courage. Freedom comes from knowing you're forgiven. God wants each and every one of us to know the forgiveness of sins, to have the forgiveness of sins. If you don't have the forgiveness of sins, you're either going to be in despair or you're going to not think about the fact that you don't have the forgiveness of sins so that you don't feel despair, right? You can either face the facts that, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I've, I've sinned against God, but I'm not going to think about it because if I think about it, I'm going to be, my, my, I'm going to be downcast. My heart is going to be without hope. So I'm not going to think about it and just fill my mind with other things and go on and live my life. But if you think about it and you think about your condition before God and you ask the question, am I right with God? Why do I die? And then when I die, am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? Am I going to be in a good place or a bad place? And if you don't know forgiveness, if you don't know that you're forgiven, then there's despair. And Jesus says to this man, and this is a fascinating thing because the man didn't say anything. The man didn't ask for this. Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was not speaking contrary to God. God didn't say, wait a second. <laughs> I didn't give you permission to say that, right? How dare you say that, son? Christ was not speaking contrary to God. Rather, whatever Christ said, he said because that's what he saw God saying. Isn't that what he says in the Gospel of John many times? The things that I do and the things that I say, I don't say them of myself, but I say them because I know God and I speak his words and I do his works. So a sense, in essence, what Jesus is saying to this man is, son, God forgives you. Your sins are forgiven by God. So in one sense, this is a declaration of God's will. Son, your sins are forgiven by God. I'm declaring to you the will of God. And in another sense, it was almost as if Jesus said, Son, I forgive you. Not that he said, I forgive you, those words. 
But I think this is what the Pharisees picked up on. said, who can forgive sins but God alone? In verse 3, this raised the Pharisees' eyebrows. The doctors of the law's eyebrows. They said, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. He's talking to this man as if he's God. Son, you can see the expression on Jesus' face. He sees the man is in turmoil, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven, as if he's the one who's forgiving him. Who can forgive sins but God alone, it says in Mark and Luke. This is the reason why they think it's blasphemy. In, in Mark, the Pharisees say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Luke, they say, Who is this? Speaking of Jesus. Good question, right? Who is this? Jesus was later killed for such blasphemy, so-called. And Jesus knows their thoughts, it says in verse 4. That was apparently a messianic sign that the rabbis were looking for. They said, when the, when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to read people's minds. They did say that. They actually put a false Messiah to death because he couldn't read someone's mind. Very interesting detail. We might not pick up on that, but I think if a, if a, a Jewish person was reading the Gospels, they would be picking up on things like that, that Jesus knew people's thoughts. And when he knew their thoughts, it says here that their thoughts were evil. Matthew Henry commented on this verse and says, see how the greatest instance of heaven's power and grace is branded with the blackest note of hell's enmity. Meaning, when Christ says to this poor sinner, you're forgiven, that very act of grace is branded as if it was an evil thing. The worst thing, blasphemy. They call good evil and evil good. And so it is today. Did you know that as Christians, we proclaim that God is forgiving? And we proclaim the grace of God, that God saves sinners? And did you know that for the religious world, that is blasphemous? That is evil? It's branded as sinful? You cannot say that to a sinner, they say. If someone's going to be accepted by God, if someone's going to be forgiven, if God's going to show grace to someone, if God's going to save somebody, then they have to... Do the right things. You can't just give grace to someone who does the wrong things. That's blasphemy. That's presumption. And so it is today. The greatest instances of heaven's grace is branded as, as if it was from hell itself. Jesus asked them, why do you think evil in your heart? Why do they think this evil in their heart? Can't they see that he's divine? Can't they see who he is? Did you know it's not impossible? It's not... There is nothing in Judaism that prevents the belief that God could come to earth in human form. Did you know that? Most people don't think that. They think that the whole belief that God could come in human form is really a strange idea in Judaism. But it's not strange. You could read it in the Old Testament that God comes to earth and actually has communion with men in human form. So couldn't the Pharisees say, well, maybe this is someone from God doing the will of God here. Maybe Jesus is from heaven. All these miracles that he's doing, no man could do these things. Maybe we should listen. 
So why do they think this evil in their heart? Why do they think that it's blasphemy for Jesus to declare the will of God that this man's forgiven? And the answer is, is because they disdain Jesus and they have no mercy in their hearts. They hate Jesus. Jesus has already been teaching a lot. Jesus is teaching them. And what Jesus teaches the people is actually in opposition to what the Pharisees themselves teach, right? We looked at that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He says you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. He shows their pretensions and their errors. And so they're watching him closely for reasons to catch him in his words. By him declaring this man's sins are forgiven, he did no sin. But they disdain him and are looking for error. They don't care about the man on the mat. They don't care about his spiritual condition. They don't care that that is exactly what he needed to hear. They want to do away with Jesus. Jesus shows them he's able to forgive sins. In the next verse, look at verse 5. Jesus says, What do you think is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk? It's rightly pointed out by scholars that this is an unanswerable question. You can't answer this question. Now, many times Jesus asked them a question and they do give him an answer. But this one, they couldn't give him an answer and he wasn't looking for an answer. It was rhetorical. You must be in a divine position to do either of these things. If you can do one of them, you can do the other. And he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, which is even better translated, that you might see that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That you can see, I'm going to heal this man so you can see that I do have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. He says to that man that is paralyzed, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he did just that. Absolutely amazing. Would have been amazing to have been there. To see the power and the authority of Jesus. He arose and departed to his house, and the multitudes marvel and glorify God, who had given such authority unto men. I think this here they were referring to Jesus declaring that the man's sins were forgiven. They were saying, this is absolutely amazing. Not only is he healing the sick, he's also forgiving sin. And this is Matthew's point. Why Matthew skips over many of the details is because he wants us to see that Jesus is not only a physical healer. As we've already seen in the last few chapters, Matthew's been showing us Christ's power over nature, power over demons, power over physical illnesses. And here he wants us to see that the Son of Man has actually power and authority to forgive sins. Matthew's beginning to show us that Jesus is not only a physical healer, but a spiritual healer. Do you remember in the Psalms? Psalm chapter 103, verse 3, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits, who heals all your diseases and forgives all your iniquities. If Jesus had come from heaven to earth and had merely forgiven, or excuse me, had merely healed all of our sicknesses, he would have done us no good. If they had lowered that man from that ceiling 
And Jesus had healed him of his paralysis, and he had walked out of there happy to be healed. He would have done that man no good. But Jesus sent a man away perfectly whole that day. Our real problem is sin, which sickness is simply a symptom of. Christ came to save us from our sins, brothers and sisters, as it says in the beginning of Matthew. You'll call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves from what? Because he will save his people from their sins. What do you think is your greatest need this morning? What do you think is your greatest need as a human being? Is your greatest need to get the bills paid next week? That's a, that's a need. I'm not saying it isn't a need. Is your greatest need to be physically well right now? Is your greatest need to be married? Is your greatest need to get a good result on the tests? To keep your job? To make lots of friends? If Jesus gives you all those things, but he, you don't receive the forgiveness of your sins, then he's done you no good. And you still are not well. And you still are not whole. Christ came to save us from our sins. Many people he saved from their sins whom he didn't heal their sick bodies. And we're going to see this theme of Christ being the spiritual healer opened up more in the next section that we look at. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew. We come now to the author's personal appearance. This is the first time we see Matthew in his own gospel, and we see him doing his thing. He's sitting at the receipt of custom. He's a tax collector, a publican, same thing. And uh, we see him in his habitat, taking people's money away from them, being a bother. <laughs> now, we think our taxes are bad today, right? Many people complain about taxes today, but it's important for us to understand that in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, uh, they had horrible taxes as well, perhaps even worse than we had. People, uh, they were taxed on what they grew out of the ground. They were taxed on their income. They were taxed by poles. One ancient historian describes taxes in the ancient world as vexatious, obnoxious, interference in life. If you were riding along on your donkey and your donkey was loaded down with goods, they'd stop you at every pole and have to go through all of your goods to tax it. Alfred Edersheim, a well-respected historian of the ancient world, says this about the taxes in those days. There was tax and duty upon all imports and exports, on all that was bought and sold, on bridge money, road money, harbor dues, town dues. The classical reader knows the ingenuity which could invent a tax and find a name for every kind of exaction, such as taxes on axles, wheels, pack animals, pedestrians, roads, highways, on admission to markets, on carriers, bridges, ships, quays, on crossing rivers, on dams, on licenses, in short, on such a variety of objects that even the research of modern scholars has not been able to identify all the names. It's been described by historians as vexatious. 
So publicans were hated for multiple reasons. Publicans in Israel were especially hated. Number one, they were hated because they were seen as anti-national. Now the Hebrew nation was a very special nation, is a very special nation. God chose them out of all the nations of the earth to be his people, and he has a purpose for them. And that purpose does not include, in their minds, being conquered by the Romans. A tax collector was collecting money from the people for the Romans, was working with the Romans. So a tax collector was actually a theological problem to the people of Israel. The existence of Matthew as a tax collector was in opposition to God's will for the nation itself. And anyone who complies with the Romans and anyone who works for the Romans is anti-national, is a sinner, is unclean, and is a blight upon our society. The rabbis taught this against publicans. Publicans, number one, were hated for that reason. Number two, they were a burden, as we've said. You see a tax collector coming by and your life is now interfered with and they have to take your money. It's a vexatious thing. It's not a noble career. Number three, they were corrupt because they got paid so little it was just inevitable and expected that they would take a little bit extra for themselves. So they were thieves, they were vexatious, and they were a theological blight upon the people. For this reason, the rabbis say, in that time they said, the repentance of tax collectors is hard. If a tax collector is going to be saved, it's going to be a very difficult process. And that is why it is so amazing and wonderful that Jesus calls Matthew, and in the way he calls him. Matthew clearly knew about Jesus. Jesus was very famous in the Galilee area. He was doing many miracles. He was teaching many things, and many crowds were following him. Matthew might have even heard Jesus teach before. He certainly knew about Jesus. But he never in his wildest dreams would have ever imagined that Jesus would have called him a tax collector, to be his disciple. And that day, as Matthew's doing his thing, Matthew's not like Zacchaeus where he you know, dropped everything to go into the tree and listen to Jesus. Matthew's at the tax. Who knows if he was taxing Jesus at that moment? <laughs> Who knows if he was pulling Jesus aside at a pole? And Jesus pulls him aside and says, follow me. And brothers and sisters, here's the amazing thing about this. That Jesus' call to Matthew was not anything like the Pharisees' call to Matthew. Because to be sure, the Pharisees had a call to Matthew. Repent, right? Here's the process you need to do. You're going to have to be penitent. You have to make it all right. You're going to have to get rid of your profession. You're going to have to prove to us you're worthy. Be baptized multiple times to cleanse away your moral sins. Matthew's, there was no hope for Matthew in the Pharisees' call. Do you know that many people are driven away from God because they think that God requires them to jump through a million hoops and a half in order for them to be right with God? And it's just overwhelmingly hopeless for them. And so they, don't, they just 
up and say, I don't have a chance. I'm not as good as other people. I just am a failure, so I might as well just forget about it and make the best of my miserable situation. But when Jesus called Matthew, something was different. There was no gulf between Matthew and Christ. There was nothing in Jesus' demeanor or his words that said, in order for you to be my friend, in order for you to be close to me, you're going to first have to do all sorts of things. You're going to have to span a gulf. But there was no gulf between Matthew and Jesus. The call to Matthew was full of mercy and hope. It was a call to blessing. It was a call to salvation. It was a deliverance from his current state of hopelessness. He sees Matthew there with no hope in his sins, resigned to perish, making the most of his miserable situation, and Jesus says, come on out of there and follow me. Let me teach you about God. Let me show you how much God loves you. The call of Matthew was an act of mercy for a hopeless man. Jesus calls us all like that, no matter who we are or where we are. Whether you feel hopeless about your own situation, Jesus says, come and follow me. Matthew arose and followed. So we have two risings in this chapter already. Verse 7, the paralyzed man rises up and goes to his own house. And in verse 9, Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew rises up and follows Jesus. Two risings, I want to suggest that one's greater than the other. It's, um, it's more amazing and wonderful that Matthew arose and followed Jesus than that the paralyzed man arose and went to his house. Because Matthew was rising out of hopelessness and sin, not just out of a physical disease. He came to be an apostle with the other 12 who probably knew him in his past. Matthew probably knew all the other 12 apostles because they were fishermen. He probably taxed them many times. So I wonder what the other apostles thought about him being an apostle. Maybe they had to confess some sin, right? But here's, here's the beautiful thing, is that Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And on that principle, I would wager that Matthew was a loving man. He became a loving man who was once a corrupt man, a hearted man, a hopeless man, a bitter man, one who was a reject, one who didn't have hope with God. When Jesus came and called him, and Jesus himself spanned that gap and said, come hang out with me. The next thing we see is Jesus eating with Matthew. He's not, Jesus is not saying, get your life right and then we'll be together. He's saying, come follow me. Let's be together right now, you and me. Nothing between us. Because Jesus showed Matthew love and forgiveness, I'm sure Matthew became a loving man. And so we see in verse 10 a feast. Luke tells us it's at, it's at Matthew's house. Matthew makes the feast. Matthew's now spending a lot of money to bless a lot of people. He invites his, his friends. He invites his fellow publicans. He says, wow, Jesus is for us. Jesus is for publicans. Jesus is for tax collectors. We can hang around with Jesus. Is that okay, Jesus, if I invite other publicans? He says, absolutely. Let them come. Let's make a feast. Let's plan this thing. 
And behold, again, verse 10, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. It's interesting that it says many publicans and sinners. The Pharisees say, why does your master eat with sinners? A sinner indeed in their eyes. A sinner in their eyes is one that the establishment doesn't wink at. Everybody's a sinner, obviously, right? But many sinners or their sins get overlooked, get winked at. It's no big deal. These were sinners that it was a big deal. These are sinners that the Pharisee says they're sinners. Why is he eating with them? And this is an amazing, this is one of the most amazing truths about Jesus. Don't miss this for the world. Don't miss this thinking it's just some story you've heard a million times. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin, comes out of heaven, the Holy One, is eating with sinners. This is an amazing thing. And brothers and sisters, this is what caused conflict with Christ and the Pharisees. Did you know that Christ was opposed not on account of sin, but on account of sinners? What I mean by that is, Christ was opposed by the Pharisees, not because they could accuse him of sin, but because he sided with sinners. You see, if Jesus had come out of heaven and lived a sinless life, quote, quote, but stayed away from sinners, distanced himself from them, like the Pharisees did, and said, you're not holy enough to be around me, but he lived this sinless life, everyone would have admired him. The Pharisees would have admired him, but he wouldn't really have lived a sinless life. Because the essence of being righteous is love. The Pharisees tend to ask good questions. Why does he eat with them? Why does he? Why does he continue to love sinners? Why does he continue to hang around with sinners and call sinners? Why does he continue to make sinners his friends? And the answer is, is because God, the Father and God the Son, love sinners and are in the business of healing sinners and bridging the gap between him and them. They that are sick need a physician, Jesus said. Don't you have a heart? He says a fascinating thing to the Pharisees in verse 13. Go and learn. That was actually a rabbinical saying that they would say to people. Go and learn. They would say that to people. He said it to them. (laughs) Go and learn what this means. And he points us to one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, and I'd like you to turn there with me, to Hosea chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus hadn't sided with us, he wouldn't have been crucified. They hated him and killed him because he, he, he sided with you and became your friend. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea is only a few books back. It's in the Minor Prophets. Right after Daniel. Daniel. 
Everybody there? <laughs> Hosea 6.6. God is speaking. God says, I desired mercy, which in Hebrew is also love. I desired mercy. God is now giving us a declaration of what he wants. God desires love and not sacrifice. And look at what he says next. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Those things are paralleled, right? Sacrifices and burnt offerings are paralleled. Love, mercy, and the knowledge of God are paralleled. He's saying, this is what I am looking for. This is what I want. This is my heart. The heart of God is not that men worship him with burnt offerings and sacrifices and everything without love and mercy. The sacrifices themselves were meant to show God's mercy and God's love towards sinners. That God had even provided a sacrifice for sinners when they had sinned, that they could be right with him, was to show the love of God. Knowing God means knowing God as a God of love. And God desires love that has its root in the knowledge of him. Thus the Pharisees were showing that they didn't know what God was like in their sayings. Because God is love. God is love for sinners and mercy for sinners. And if you want to see what God is like, you can see what God is like in Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. You want to see the knowledge of God? Can someone please tell me what God is like? Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? Jesus is showing us what God is like. Is that how you think God is like when you think about God? Should you think that God is holy and righteous? Yes. Sinless? Yes. Opposed to sin? Yes. Just? Yes. But does his wrath and justice and holiness cause him to be distant from sinners? No. And many people who have the true belief in God that he's just, that's not untrue. That's all they know. He's just, and so if you sin, he can't be with you. He's righteous, and you're unrighteous, so until you get righteous, you can't be friends. And so there's always a gap, and there's always a distance until you clean up your life and make yourself right before you can be in relationship with God. And while we maintain as Christians, yes, God is just, yes, sin must be punished, yes, God is holy and we are sinful, and that does create a problem, the good news of the gospel is that God himself doesn't content himself to stay distant. If it's upon us to make it right, there is no hope. And we wouldn't know what God is like because he'd be content to stay distant until we make it right. The gospel shows us that God is love and his love is for us even while we're his enemies and even while we're sinners. Jesus says, I've come for sinners in verse 13. I'm not come for the righteous. I'm come for sinners. I've come to save them. 
I've come to call them. I've come to be friends with them. I've come to make them whole. I've come to bring them salvation and that they might know God, that they might repent, meaning that they might have new thoughts about God and realize that He loves them and that He wants them to be with them and that they might be whole through that knowledge. In the next section in verse 15, we have the first indication of the death of Jesus on his lips. The first indication on the lips of Jesus concerning his death, he says there's a coming a time when the bridegroom will be taken away, and that's an allusion to his death. They asked him, how come your disciples don't fast? He says, it's not a time to fast. This is a time to feast. This is a time to eat with sinners. This is a time to rejoice. The kingdom of God has come. And this is a time to call sinners. And there's joy in heaven when sinners repent. But there is coming a time when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. And the part about the wineskins and the patch, I don't believe means anything more than that. You just don't do that. You don't put new patches on old garments. You don't put new wines on old wines. You just don't do that. It just ruins it. It ruins the it ruins what the new is and what the old is. And so he's saying you don't fast when such a time like this is now. You don't do that. It would ruin the time and it would ruin fasting. Through Christ's death for us, his love is revealed most clearly. Because how can we be forgiven of our sins? How can that gulf be spanned that is there when we sin against a holy God and his justice requires our death and God is not going to overlook our sin? God is not going to slacken his law. How can then he forgive us? How can Jesus eat with sinners? Because he's doing that and he is forgiving us. How is that possible? And the answer is because of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And if we take away the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, then we take away Jesus eating with sinners and we take away Jesus healing the sick. We take away Jesus even being born into the world. Because the only reason he came into the world and for the only purpose was to die for our sins. The only way that he can forgive us of our sins is because of his death. The only way he can administer healing and deliverance from sickness and death is because of his death for us on the cross. Jesus does not consider a person to be whole until they've been forgiven. Jesus does not consider a person to be whole until they understand who God is and the love that God has for them. You are not healthy, friends, until you know God and you have the assurance of his love for you, until you walk in the freedom of forgiveness. You're not paralyzed by guilt. You're not ignoring sin. That wouldn't be healthy either. But you're only healthy and whole when you have come to reality, you've reckoned what reality is, that you're a sinner, but that God loves you and God has sent his son to die for your sins and you are forgiven. And until you know that, you're not a healthy person, even if your body is physically well. 
as we sang this morning, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And until you can sing that song with any sort of understanding, until you have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, you are not whole again. You are not whole but a broken person. But the good news is that Christ was broken to bring us wholeness and by his stripes we are healed. He came out of heaven so that we could be whole because he loved us. By believing in Jesus, we are saved and we come to know God. So this is what Matthew wants us to see. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus Christ is the meter of our greatest need. He's the meter of all our needs, but our greatest need. Not just our body's needs, but our soul's needs. So in closing, I want to ask you, are you whole this morning? Are you healthy? Have you believed the good news? Have you believed that you're a sinner? Have you confessed that you're a sinner? Are you ignoring this morning the fact that you're a sinner? Are you putting that aside and saying, I don't need to deal with that right now? Or maybe as are foolish and say, I don't need to ever deal with that. But brothers and sisters, we live in a moral universe and we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all done things that God has commanded us not to do and for that reason, we stand in danger of his just judgment. You have to confess that you're a sinner. But also believe that even though you're a sinner, God loves you. God bridges the gap. God sent his son and forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you. Have you believed? Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, look, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, which is what he wants to do, and eat with him and he with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing your love for sinners in your Son and for sending your Son into a sinful world that is at enmity with you and showing us that you so desire to eat with sinners because you love us. And thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for not being content to be alone. Thank you for considering our helpless state and for shedding your blood for our sins so that we could be forgiven and whole again. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is not assured of the forgiveness of sins, that is paralyzed by guilt, that they would know that you are forgiving and nothing stands between them and your grace. May we learn to live in the freedom of your forgiveness and love. In Jesus' name, amen.